Sometimes he seems so distant, so different. Is he even real? What if that transcendent, holy, glorious creator of the universe wanted to meet us? What if we could know him, not just know about him, but actually know him? Encountering God. A new series at Stapleton Church. All right, welcome everybody. It's so good to see you guys. My name is Matt Wolf. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm so glad you're here and I'm glad you're coming back next week, right? Yeah, Easter, man, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. We were out yesterday and I just want to say thank you to our huge team of volunteers at the Egg Scramble yesterday. Thank you guys. Let's give you guys a round of applause. Thank you. We passed out hundreds of these invitations, gave away a bunch of footballs and beach balls and all sorts of stuff. Say, hey, come. We're fun, right? No, Jesus is awesome. That's why you should come, because we want to help you follow Jesus. That's what we're all about here. And these these cards, we want you to take one. Take the one on the seat next to you and give them away. I don't want to see a single card left today. We even have some door hangers left. If you know neighbors that need Jesus, which are all of our neighbors, right? I want to see you. Melissa and I went around our whole block and gave, put those store hangers up and we're like, man, we should have gotten more. Let's get the next block. So we're going to take some if, if there's any left, but I don't want to see any left because I want you to take those door hangers. We want to invite people. Um, just a couple things with that. Um, Ariel mentioned a couple things with volunteer needs, but what we have found is our second service is crazy packed. That 930 service is going to be crazy packed. So if it's possible for you, we really encourage you to go to the first service, the 815. I know that means waking up early, getting things going. But if you can, please go to the 815 service. If you're already bringing a friend, awesome. I'll give you a high five. Come to the 930. You know, come to the 1045. Please do. Um, But if you can, come to the 815. Also, our parking lot is full on a normal week. So if you are physically able, please park out of the lot. Okay? We got permission from the school down the street. Um, that you can park there. I know it's a little bit long walk, but hey, you're making room for somebody to come to know Jesus. Really, seriously, they may hear the gospel for the first time and the story of the resurrection for the first time. So if you can, if you're physically able, park somewhere else and walk. Hey, you could bike next week. It's supposed to be really nice, right? Walk to church, bike to church. It's going to be nice. Yeah, so that's exciting. And then today we are actually kind of finishing up our Encountering God series. Now, technically next week is going to be kind of our final encounter of the series. But it's a little bit different because it shifts from all the tone and the way that all the encounters before it have happened. So this is our 10th week in this series, Encountering God, as we've looked at these encounters between the divine, holy God of the universe and human beings. And this one, this 10th one, the last one that we'll look at in the Old Testament is maybe the most bizarre yet. We've looked at some weird ones. I mean, God, he's got to be different because he's not us, right? And I think this one will blow your mind the most. You ready for your mind to be blown? Good, because it's going to happen whether you want to or not. I think just like Ezekiel's mind was blown. In fact, I picked this story uh, looking ahead at this series months ago, and I was like, I want to do this for me. This one's for me, okay? You guys just get to overhear it because it's that good. I just wanted to spend all week delving into this passage, studying it, praying over it, and I'm so glad I did because it was one I didn't really understand, but I'm glad I came because it really reveals a God of glory, a God of glory. Now, Charles Misner is a great American physicist, and I think he got his education at Yale, his Ph.D., But he particularly studied the life of Albert Einstein, as you would in that field. 
He studied everything he wrote and said, everything he taught. He, he loved Albert Einstein, but he said something really interesting about Albert Einstein after studying him. And, and this is what he said. He said, the design of the universe is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions he'd run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. Ooh. Now that is a scathing indictment of people like me, right? And I hope that no one will say that about me and my God and the God we worship here because this God is glorious. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is more powerful than we could ever imagine. And I want to tell you today that you cannot contain the glory of God. You cannot contain the glory of God. And that's what we're going to see today. And I hope that Albert Einstein would say, yes, that is the God I have seen when I looked in my telescope. The grandeur of the universe all around us and of the human being next to us. You know, the word glory gets thrown around a lot, but I don't think we really know what it means. It comes from a Hebrew word in the Bible, the Hebrew word kavod. Can you turn to the person next to you and say kavod? Kavod. Kavod. It's a word that could be translated as weight or heaviness. There's, there's this heaviness, there's this power, there's this weight about God. I heard one pastor say that as heat is to fire, or light is to the sun, or wet is to water, so is glory to God. It's just something about Him that emanates from Him. There's this weight. When we talk about God in the heavens, there's this transcendence to His glory. But when we talk about that feeling when He is there with us, there's a palpable imminence to his glory there's even a weight that we can personally feel and experience and i hope that you guys will be able to encounter that god because you cannot contain that glory you can't but even if we just get a glimpse or a taste of it wow something powerful and that is what ezekiel was able to encounter some 2500 years ago that we're going to examine today and if you know anything about the book of Ezekiel, you know that it's really hard to understand. Some of you, I've spent my life studying the Bible, and it's still like dense to me. It's hard for me to understand Ezekiel. I wish I understood it more. That's why I was like, I'm going to read this chapter. I'm going to study it. I'm going to preach it because I need to know it more. Because this is such an amazing, kind of bizarre encounter of the glorious God of the universe. But I think we're going to learn so much from it as we see that God cannot be contained. And first, what we're going to see is that God cannot be contained by our expectations. So I want you to open up a Bible with me to Ezekiel chapter 1. If you have a smartphone or tablet, you can follow along there. We're going to have the main verses up here on the screen, too, so you can follow along. We're going to start in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Ezekiel wrote, In my 30th year, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River... The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On 
And, and he says this in a little bit longer language, but he actually literally gives us a date that we know. I think it's pretty cool. There's several dates throughout Ezekiel, and we can pinpoint them to the exact day that they happen. That's kind of rare in the Bible. So he's saying, he's in his journal basically saying, on July 31st, 593 B.C., the word of the Lord, in verse 3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest by the Kibar River, and then jumping down, came to Ezekiel the priest. There the hand of the Lord was on him. So there's some really interesting details here that are important. Now, whenever you see details in the Bible, they're important. Because in this day and age, paper was very expensive and very hard to make. So if you're going to write something, every detail, every word matters. And especially in the Hebrew Bible, that's our Old Testament, those first 37 books of the Bible, when you see a detail, it's extremely important. So when Ezekiel says, in my 30th year, I think it's important. Because have you ever seen someone's age anywhere else in the Bible? It's very, it, almost extremely rare. And he's saying, hey, I'm, I was 30 when I had this vision. And yes, the heavens opened up and I had these visions, so I was able to see something. We don't know if it was a trance or this vision or somehow he saw something physically. We don't know. But he had these visions of God. He says exactly when it was. And then the, the, the narrator, the editor of this passage says that it came to Ezekiel the priest specifically says his profession as a priest. Now, why do I think those two details are important? Because, according to God's law, a priest did not start his duty in the temple until he was 30 years old. When you turn 30, finally you could become official priest. Someone like Ezekiel would have trained for years in the temple as an apprentice. We saw several weeks ago Samuel that was living in the temple. He was a young man apprenticing. That's probably what Ezekiel would have done for years. Apprenticing, learning his train, learning, what, learning his trade. And finally at age 30, he gets to go into the temple, into the glory of God and, and worship before him. Nobody else was allowed into the inner temple unless you were a priest. So why is that significant? Well, because he's not at the temple. Did you see where he was? By the Kibar River. Now we miss these uh, details because we don't know anything about Middle Eastern geography, let's be honest, right? So I want to show you on a map so you know where this is and why this is important. So the temple that Solomon built was in Jerusalem. And when he built that, God basically said, hey, for a time I'm going to live among you. I'm going to reside in this temple. This is where my glory is going to be, this physical location. You can come worship me here, and that's where you can worship me, nowhere else. In this temple in Jerusalem. Well, something happened. And if we see our next slide, the Babylonian Empire happened. This great, evil, awful empire took over most of the Middle East, including Jerusalem, where God's people lived. And the Babylonian Empire, when they took over, they took the people of Israel. Actually, they did this for every people group they took over. But then they would move them to another location, basically to strip all their power from them. They took all their weapons. They took, except the poorest of the poor, they would leave them to what worked the land as slaves. And they would take everyone else and relocate them in a different area. And as we can see in the next slide, the Jews were relocated to the Kibar River, which would have been a canal off of the great Euphrates River in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. So they would have been relocated. We have something similar like this in our own U.S. history, when our government forcefully removed people and moved them to a new location. Heard of the Trail of Tears? 
That's what happened to God's people. They were forcibly removed from their lands and made to live in another nation where they knew no one. Basically, they had to start a city from scratch. They didn't know the land. They had to learn how to work it and grow crops. They were far away, probably based on, on the trajectory of, of the travel of the day, that it would have been about a thousand miles to get there. So this would have been months and months of walking on foot to get there. And then just to even think about going back would take months and months of travel, but you weren't allowed to go back. And this had happened five years prior to this vision Ezekiel has. So if Ezekiel is 30 and he's just excited, finally ready to enter the temple and be a priest, but where is he? For the last five years, he has been in Babylon, a thousand miles from home, away from his people, the town he loved, his countryside, his temple. Everything that he had expected his life to be like, his career, his aspirations, his family that I'm sure he wanted to have, all of that was different. His expectations were dashed. You ever had that happen to you? Yeah, all of us, right? We think, oh, when we're young, oh, I I can just dream about what my life's going to be like. I'm going to go to this school, and then maybe you can get in, but you probably don't. Or you get in, and you're like, I can't handle this. You drop out. You're saying, oh, this is the career I want to be, and I've been thinking about it, dreaming about it. You get there, if you can even get a job in your career field, right? Or you do get in, And then you're like, this is not what it's cracked up to be. Time to restart over again, right? Man, we change careers so quick, don't we? (laughs) You have to. And and then you're like, oh, I'm going to get married. But then you're still single. Oh, I'm going to have these kids. Oh, no, we're dealing with infertility. Oh, I'm going to be retired at that age. Oh, I still got to keep working. I don't have enough money saved up. Isn't that what happens in our life? Over and over and over again, our expectations are dashed. Guess what? That's what Ezekiel was experiencing. And God shows up in a vision and it literally says, the hand of the Lord was on Ezekiel. Do you know why? God is saying, I cannot be contained by your expectations. In fact, my plan is still going. You may have lost your job. Things may not be where you want to. You may be living in a city you don't like. You can't afford any rent here. Barely can live in a one-bedroom apartment. This isn't where I want to be, God. But God is saying, I'm in charge. I know what's going on. I cannot be contained by your expectations. I am bigger than them. And I have a plan for your life that I'm working out in every detail. See, God cannot be contained by our expectations. Nor can he be contained by our human limitations. He can't be contained by our limitations. Because that's what we're going to see next as this vision starts to get a little weird. You ready? Verse 4. Ezekiel wrote, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire, where did that come from? Was what looked like four living creatures. What? In appearance, their form was human. But each of them had four faces and four wings. I told you this is going to be weird, right? Okay, let me take a break for a second. I need to teach you guys something. So you guys got to pay attention, right? You focus on me. When Ezekiel writes here, this is a specific type of literature in the Bible, specific type of genre. This isn't a letter that Paul wrote to a church, right? This isn't even um, 
history in the same sense that we get in a lot of other places in the Bible. This is what's often called apocalyptic literature. You guys like apocalyptic? Okay. We, we usually use that term for the end of the world, the Antichrist is coming, everything is going to happen, there's going to be a great battle. Oh my gosh, earthquakes, wars, right? <laughs> but actually, apocalypse is a word that just means something revealed. It's revealed. And that's why the book of Revelation, which is the apocalyptic literature of the New Testament... In older Bibles, it is called the Apocalypse of John, because John was one of the disciples and he had this great vision. There's a lot of similarities between this. So throughout the Bible, in places like Ezekiel, the end of Daniel, he didn't just get stuck in a lion's den. Okay, He wrote some crazy apocalyptic literature too. In other places like Zephaniah, in a few places in the Gospels, and the entire book of Revelation, it's apocalyptic. God is revealing something about the future, about how he's operating, about who he is, and it just seems bizarre and out there. If you read this stuff, you're going to be like, what the heck? And what is happening in this is that there's these visions that these people are happening, having. And in the visions, there, there's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of images of things that are strange. But what I want you to see when you read this type of literature in the Bible, it's very easy to tell when you're reading this stuff because you're like, that, that's weird. So we have four creatures, four heads, four wings. What's going on here? When you read this, what you're supposed to see is these images are representative of certain truths. They're symbols. Now, possibly are these creatures real creatures that somehow exist in heaven on a different astral plane? Maybe. But what we do know for sure is that they represent some things. So Ezekiel goes on to describe these four living creatures, and they actually are later in chapter 10 described as a type of angel. These are angels that he's seeing, a certain type called cherubim. Now, a few weeks ago, if you were here, we were introduced to a different type of angels called seraphim. Now, I'm sorry to to spoil someone's parade, but we do not become angels when we die. We don't. In fact, angels are a different type of created being from humans. God created them. And if God, in his divine um, creativity, could create all the different species of fishes and animals and primates, he probably created more than one species of angels. Hence, we're told about two specifically, the seraphim and the cherubim. So here we're told about these cherubim, and they're said that they have four wings. Now, two of their wings, they said, covered their body, and then two were holding something up, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But they had four heads, four faces, and they were each facing a different direction. One of the faces was a human face, another face was a lion face, another face was the face of an ox, and the other face was that of an eagle. Pretty bizarre, right? When you guys think of angels, that's not what you think of, I know. You've got to look outside of Michelangelo. Let's look at the Bible, okay? In these four images, think of the symbols they represent. Well, humans, God gave the earth for humans to rule. And to the lions, they kind of rule all the wild animals, symbolically, right? The oxen are the, the greatest of all livestock, and the eagle is the bird that rules the air. So with those different images of these faces, what we can see is that these are probably very powerful creatures that rule the earth, the animals, the wild animals, and livestock, and even the air. These are powerful beings that God has created that serve him. And I think it's really interesting that they have four faces, one in each direction. I think that is symbolic as well. Because one face faces north, the other south, the other east, and the other west. Do you remember when you were a kid, you used to say that your mom had eyes in the back of her head? Right? These angels have eyes on all sides of their heads. 
Not figuratively can they see everything. Literally, they see everything in every direction. And there's four of them. And so in case one of them misses something, the other one see it, right? And these are just the mere servants of God. What I think God is telling us symbolically here is that he sees everything. There is nothing hidden from his sight. He can see all things and he knows all things. See, God is not limited the way we human beings are. Man, we can't even multitask. No, I can't at all. I'm terrible at it. I can't have a conversation and chop carrots at the same time. I'm bad at multitasking. But God, see, he can see everything. Just his servants can see everything. He's not limited in knowledge in the same way that we are. Everything that happens on the entire planet and in the entire universe, he sees and knows about. Now, this has some very um, convicting implications, doesn't it? In Hebrews 4.13, the author would write, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. He knows what you did. Even if nobody else does. God knows. He sees it. So that can be a very convicting thing when we commit sins and crimes, when we hurt other people or say things that are terrible. God sees that. But it can also be a very encouraging truth as well. In Second Chronicles 16.9, we read, The Lord's eyes scan the whole world to strengthen those who are committed to him with all their hearts. See, when you are down and out and struggling, when you got the diagnosis or you're on your knees saying, I don't think I can go another day. God sees you and he wants to strengthen you and encourage you because he loves you. See, his eyes see everything. When Hagar, if you remember that story from Genesis, she's running away from her cruel mistress who abused her and treated her poorly. As she's running away, desperate and angry, God comes to her and she has this encounter and she says afterwards, God sees all. Because he does. He sees us when we're hurting and wants to help us. So just his angels we see in this passage, just his angels can see all things. See, God is not limited the way we are limited. He's not. And he knows all things. We often struggle with the concept of prayer. How could God handle billions of people praying at the same time all over the world? How can he handle that and and deal with all those things? Well, God doesn't have a human brain. we, We think of him that way, but he doesn't. He's the God of the universe. He cannot be contained by our limitations. In fact, have you even just thought of the reality of Amazon Alexa? Who in here has one of those? Have an Alexa or assistant or anything. We have one, and what we use it for is, yeah, music, but also like, uh, Alexa, what sound does a cat make? If you have a two-year-old, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I probably just, somebody's watching online, and their Alexa just went off. You know, Alexa, could you order me some? No, somebody at home is in trouble, right? See, we have that, and people in every house around the country and around the world can talk to Alexa at the same time and ask Alexa things. And Alexa can say stuff, right? And there's one central processing server. My sister and her husband live in Virginia, and there's these warehouses next to them. And and they're just huge, enormous warehouses that only have 14 employees taking care of them. Because it's just filled with mainframes and disk space. I don't even know what it is. It's beyond me, right? But just to basically catalog all the data from all of your households. (laughs) And if we have that technology in Alexa that can answer everyone's questions at any time, how much more so can a God of the universe handle those things? He's not limited in the way that we are. God cannot be contained by our limitations. But there's more in this vision that we see that God cannot be contained by a location either. This is where things get really interesting. Jump down with me to verse 14. 
In verse 14, Ezekiel says, The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. They're moving fast, right? Zigzagging. Verse 15, As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. Weird. Verse 17, As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. And I, I just threw this one in because it's fun. Their rims were high and awesome. When you're looking for a car, that's your Bible verse for the day, right? That's what I'm looking for. Do you have something that's rims are high and awesome? What is going on here? This is a bizarre image, right? Somehow these four angels are a, some kind of chariot. And they have these wheels But it says, if you read more, that the wheels kind of were intersected by other wheels, but even the wheels themselves did not move. So these wheels are again symbolic of something. That these angels could go anywhere they wanted. It says even they're flashing back and forth like lightning. They can move anywhere, wherever they want. In all four directions. These four creatures coming together are just going everywhere. And they don't move like normal human beings. They're not confined to a location. So I think this was particularly important, this image, for Ezekiel in his day and age. Because remember where he was? Not in Jerusalem. Not at the temple. See, when God said, I will live in the temple, that's where people began to think. That's where God lives. He only stays in the temple, right? He's only in one location. So now they are a thousand miles from home. Where is God? That's what they were asking themselves. Where is God now that we're so far away from home? But God is not confined by a location. He's not confined by a location. And God is showing up now on a chariot saying, hey, my glory does not stay in one place. It can go wherever you are, even if you're in a terrible place. Even if it seems like you are living through hell, I am there. See, God's people forgot this. In fact, in Psalm 137.1, we see their mindset. They, one of the psalmists wrote, Beside the rivers of Babylon, that's where our story takes place, right? We sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. They were weeping. They were sad. We've lost so much. We've lost where God's presence is. And now God is showing up right where they are. You can't outrun God. You cannot hide from his presence. In fact, even Solomon knew this as he prayed to dedicate the temple he built. He said in 1 Kings chapter 8, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So he knew it, but the people forgot, and we forget. We somehow think that there's these holy places churches, cathedrals. That's where God lives, right? We forget that, no, no, no. God lives everywhere. He is not contained by location. I heard the hip-hop artist Lecrae several years ago. And before he became a follower of Jesus, he uh, told this story about he was with some of his homies and they were out, you know, bumping some music, driving in their car, riding dirty, right? And they were listening to some music, and he said, you know, describing, he's like, it was awful language, foul words, very misogynistic. We were bumping it, right? And then all of a sudden, the guy driving just turns down the radio. And Lecrae's like, what's going on? Why'd you do that? And he said, oh, no, we have to. There's a church there. When they drove by a church, they would turn down the music, right? 
And then as soon as they passed by, they would turn it up again. Why did they do that? Because they somehow thought that that is a holy place and that's where God is. But guess what? God is everywhere. He's not confined to a location. But superstitiously, we think that, right? But God is not confined by that. He's not contained by any one location. So no matter where you go, God is there. And that's why when God's people do come together, it doesn't matter where they meet. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am with them. That's why we can worship in a hangar. It doesn't matter that it's not a cathedral. It's holy because we are here. Now, there may be something about a holy place. We saw when Moses was on the mountain, God said, hey, this is a holy place. Don't come near. You've got to take off your sandals, if you remember that story. So there is something significant about certain places. But the reality is that anywhere is holy if God's people are there. Because God is there. See, God is not contained by a location. So this means that when you leave here today, God is still with you. He's watching you in good ways and bad. He's with you to strengthen you and help you wherever you are. And you can worship him no matter how you live or do your work. In fact, Paul would say later, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all to the glory of God. Interesting. Even the food we eat can be given to God's glory if we do it for his name. See, everything you do, everywhere we go. And then that's why we come back together every Sunday and we worship weekly because we want to come together with God's people to worship God's glory, whether it's here or another location. The location doesn't matter because God is not contained by a location. In fact, did you know the word church? We think it means building, but it doesn't. Originally in the Greek, when Jesus used it, he was talking about the assembly, the people who are called out. It's a group of people, not a place. We are the church. We are the church. God is not contained by a location. As, and as this image that Ezekiel sees of this glory of God, these angels riding about on these wheels that don't really move and going everywhere like lightning, God is not contained by location. And here's even the best part. God is not contained by our preferences. I want to show you this, this last section. Jump down all the way to verse 26. This is kind of the climax of this entire vision. We read above, I'm sorry, it says high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. So what's going on is that these four angels, they had two wings covering their bodies and then two wings are holding something up. So all four of the angels have two wings holding up and sometimes in the NIV it's called a vault and some other versions it's called a platform. But there's something above them that these angels are holding up with their wings. And on this platform is a throne. And there's someone on the throne. This figure, like that of a man, it looks almost humanoid, this being. And he says, I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. If we can go back to that last slide. So that the radiance, so was the radiance around him. So you see this image of this person, this human, something like a human on a throne. Glowing metal, fire, radiance, glory. And I love that there's even a rainbow there. Now, rainbow meant a little something different in the Bible times. In fact, you might have heard the story of Noah. After God kind of wiped out the whole earth with a flood, then he made a promise said, I will never again wipe out all the people of the earth. And he gave the rainbow as a promise. 
saying that there's hope. That there's hope. And in the same way, this figure, like a man, shows up on a throne, flaming fire, radiance, glory, and there's hope coming with him. And in verse 28 at the end, Ezekiel says, This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. Do you know what he's saying? This is just the likeness of the glory of God. This is not the full glory of God, but this is just a glimpse of his glory. Just a glimpse of his glory was enough to knock him literally down on his face in worship and reverence. Why I love this passage is that it blows all of our minds. It breaks down the box that we have created for what we think God is like, because this is different than what I learned in Sunday school. I don't remember this story. Right? Even if you grew up going to church, you're like, what the heck? If you're here for the first time, you're like, Matt, whoa, what is this story? Hey, yeah, it's bizarre. It's crazy. It's out there. It's otherworldly. It's the glory of God. And we don't get to decide what God is like. That's why I say God is not contained by our preferences. I talk to people. I even hear people preach. And they're like, I like the God of love. Of course we all do. And it literally says God is love. But guess what? There are so many more facets of his character and person. God is a God of glory. He's a God that, that controls all things. He's so much greater and grander than any way that we could put him in a, a box. We can't say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the Old Testament. No, no, no. We don't get to decide. It is not up to us to decide what God is like. God is. It is up for us to study him, to get to know him, to fall in love with every aspect of his character and spend the rest of our lives and eternity getting to know him more. You cannot contain the glory of God. This is just the likeness of him. In our series so far, we've seen all sorts of different aspects of God. This is our 10th message in this series. And through each of the stories, we, we gained a little bit more insight of who this God is. And there's so many more encounters in this book, and I encourage you to read them, study them, get to know them, pray through them. And even if you have, you're still going to learn more. And as you t- spend time talking with God in prayer, you're going to get to know him more. You're going to experience his presence and his glory in new and unique ways every day. In this story, we've seen first that God showed up to Moses. That's where we started this series. It's this burning bush. And we saw that God showed up because he wants to be known. That's a profound thing. He wants a relationship with us. And then he showed up to Abraham as a God who makes promises of good things. And he signed them in blood. And then we saw to Isaac, a God who provides. And to Jacob, a God who wrestles with us. When we looked at Adam and Eve, we saw a God who, even in the midst of judgment because of sin, provides a glimmer of hope. He provides hope. And then we saw to Samuel, a God who speaks to us, who wants to talk to us. And hear what we have to say as well as tell us who he is. We saw it with Job, a God who shows up in the storm, in the most difficult times of life. God is there, even if we don't understand. To Isaiah, a God who was enthroned and full of holiness. Last week, Sawyer preached and told us about, with Jeremiah, a God who calls us, even though we're not qualified. And today we see a God full of glory. And these are just some glimpses of who God is. There's so much more. We've only just scratched the surface. We've only just gotten a glimpse, a taste of who he is. But I hope that you will leave here today knowing that you cannot contain the glory of God. 
You cannot contain him. He's not yours. He is not some rabbit's foot that you put in your pocket and you rub when you're feeling bad. He, he's not um, some God that's like a magic eight ball when you need an answer to the question, should I marry her? Ask again later. He's not even a lion that you can keep in a cage and take out when you need some power and fierceness. No, God will be with you to encourage you. God will guide you with his Holy Spirit and he will give you a strength and fierceness that you've never had before. But you do not control him. God is God and you are not. You cannot contain the glory of God. But you know the most amazing aspect of the glory of God is that God chose to be contained. Have you ever thought about that? This glorious God who had angels holding up his throne, serving him, worshiping him, he came down as a human being by the name Jesus. And he was born as a baby. So even though he had angels serving him at all times, now he had to be held by his mother and nursed. He had to be fed human sustenance. He had a frail human body just like us. It tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that he emptied himself of all glory. That he became a human, frail, weak, just like us. But even more than that, he became a servant to all. This king of kings, full of glory and fire and flame, served the lowly and the outcasts. When his disciples had disgusting, filthy feet, he bent down on his knees and washed them with his bare hands. To make it even more incredible, this glorious God of the universe went to the cross and he suffered and was executed and died in our place. And they took his body and they laid it in the tomb and they rolled a stone over it. To most people, they would have thought that the glory of God had been contained. But not even death could contain him. And on the third day, as we will celebrate next week, Jesus rose from the dead, full of glory and power, and appeared to over 500 people. And he was seen with a new body, living full of glory before he ascended into heaven, where he is seated on that throne once again. This was the God of glory who said, Death cannot contain me. Sin cannot contain me. The devil himself cannot contain me. Because I am that full of glory. And that is the God who, when we just glimpse His glory, we fell down and worship to Him. And that's what we're going to do right now as we declare that God is King forever. Forever we will worship Him because that glory belongs to Him forever and ever and ever. Lord God, this morning we've read this passage. It's bizarre. It blows our mind. It breaks down the box of who we thought God is. And we're thankful for that. And we pray that more and more we would grow in the knowledge and the faith of you because you are glorious. And with that glory, you emptied yourself. You laid it all down for us on the cross. But Lord, we're so thankful that's not the end of the story. And next week we are going to be able to celebrate with so many people, not only here but around the world because you're not contained by location. And we are going to declare your praises forever and ever and ever. Amen.